Welcome to episode three of the NGMI podcast. Crypto is confusing. So I launched the show in an attempt to help clear up some of that confusion and make the Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto blockchain thing more understandable to you guys. The major benefit of this show is that I get to speak to people who know a lot more about the specific sectors of the crypto market, economics and finance in general than I do, and then hopefully pass on some practical information for everyone listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Monfort. He's the co-founder of a crypto venture studio called Not Centralized, as well as the co-founder of the Australian DeFi Association. Mark has recently branched out to focus more specifically on the field of AI. However, he remains extremely knowledgeable on all things crypto. In this episode, we talk about the key trends emerging in crypto and blockchain heading into 2024, the potential for harmonious integration between blockchain and AI, how quantum computing could decimate Bitcoin and the entire world of online security, the role of zero-knowledge proofs in protecting data, the cryptocurrencies that Mark expects to stick around for the long haul, and more. Without further delay, today's guest, Mark Monfort. Hey, and we're live. How are you, man? Good, man. Good to be live. This is uh, this is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to episode three. Thank you yeah, for coming can't on. It. It's it's freaking crazy. I've saw, I've seen the first two. You're doing so well so far, and uh, I say so far, not in an ominous way, ominous way, but like I, I know that there's big things coming. But having done stuff like this, it's uh, it's not easy. So well done on getting uh, everything set up. Um, I've got. For folks that don't know, there's questions here. It's all prepared. Yeah, you, you know, we're running off uh, Riverside, like proper stuff here, folks. <laughs> Guys, you know it's premium when you know they've written questions beforehand. So, uh, speaking of questions, I think we'll just jump straight in. Um, yep. I am really curious as to the to the trends that you see emerging in the crypto industry right now. And again, this obviously doesn't have to be linked to to tokens. I'm not asking you to shill yep. your bags unless you want to. Um, <laughs> but it is it is more of a question around the new applications um, protocols that are being drummed up this year that might bring something novel, something of value to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, over the holidays, a lot of people were pretty privy to seeing all of these great uh, crypto outlook reports, whether it was from folks like Masari or crypto.com, Swissborg, the block, PwC were in there. You know, you had folks like Pantera Capital, Nansen, Van Eck, who do the ETF, a mm. whole heap of um, folks. And uh, we crunched, uh, I was going to say, normally I'd say crunch the numbers, but I used to work in data, but it's more um, words now. So, you know, doing all that. Crunch AI the stuff words. As well. Crunch the words and uh, what the words say, the common themes across uh, the thousands of pages of reports were tech developments. That was a big thing. So the rise of DEXs was really um, a big kind of push over centralized ones. So that was like a really key theme from all of those reports. And um, just that ability to have uh, secure kind of data solutions when it comes to how AI could play a part in uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the blockchain decentralized stuff. So there was a lot of talk about that as well as like macro kind of factors. So people talking about, you know, the upcoming um, at the time it was upcoming and now we've got it. So we're dealing in the aftermath, but the B, uh, the BTC ETF, so Bitcoin ETF, um, the much anticipated, a lot of fanfare, then disappointment and stuff now that uh, some people have had. But 
you know, just zoom out and you've got like a better outlook. But the Federal mm. Reserve interest rate changes, how that's going to impact the market, um, supply and demand kind of factors as well, and just like the Bitcoin halving events. So a lot of talk about that. Regulatory stuff was definitely on the cards, uh, both here and overseas, and definitely closer to home in Australia. There was a lot of the talk around what regulations would be and how that would look um, for the average punter. And uh, people were, you know, speculating. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that we've got regulation being planned, uh, at least an initial kind of consultation paper on regulating digital asset providers. So um, the platforms that are in that space would be exchanges. It'd be anyone that has any kind of custody. Um, we were lucky enough as the uh, Australian DeFi Association and, and Not Centralized being a builder. And, you know, I wear both kind of hats uh, there. Um, the, from the association side, we were able to bring developers to a roundtable um, run by the Commonwealth Treasury, the people that are actually looking to make the laws that talked about um, what are the concerns that builders might have. So they talked to the lawyers around the regulation. They talked to consumer action groups around how it affects consumers. And they talked to the um, exchanges as well. But uh, what has not really happened in the past with laws has been really talking to developers and that part of the industry. So it was really good to participate in that. And I guess the key thing is if you're going to fall into the regulatory, regulatory perimeter where regs capture you, it's to do when you're you're basically handling if there's at any point that you've got control of um, people's assets, even if it's a little bit. If you've you've got this chance at control, you might call yourself decentralized and whatnot. But if you've got at some point uh, access and control of people's funds, then you definitely have to think about licensing. That they, they haven't got any rules, sorry, uh, laws out yet. But that's certainly you know top of mind there. So. Regulatory mm. stuff, really interesting. Um, and then just, yeah, the innovation and use cases, we're starting to see some really interesting things. And I guess we'll get to a little bit of that, of that later in the show, but around real world asset tokenization, still a hot topic. A lot of um, mainstream folks coming into that space, um, not naming any specific kind of projects there. It's still kind of early days in that part of the world. But um, because the hot topic has been AI, the interesting thing, I think, for, I guess, DGENs in this space has been that blockchain is actually um, far more useful than people think. A lot of folks wanted to discard it, but I think the trend that we're seeing is that seeing blockchain used as part of AI solutions. So AI helps everything, but I think that other way around, like where blockchain um, secures and helps uh, power AI um, solutions is going to be really spoken about a lot more this year. So. Yeah, a lot okay. of great outlooks. And like I said, we used AI to read through, you know, the thousand pages of reports, um, but just at a very high level, those are some of the things that are there. Okay. No, that's really, I'm really curious as to how you see, because I'm kind of, I consider myself being in like the D-cell camp of AI. I'm very okay. like, yeah. uh, uh, like that's, Don't there's run a lot going on there. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. um, no, I get on with a lot of like the e-accelerationist guys. Like yeah. I, I really do. I think there's a lot there, but I find that myself temperamentally, I sit more on like mm. the D cell. And so for those listening, it's D cell would be those that consider themselves like, uh, no more AI progression, please. And mm -hmm. the effective accelerationists, the E slash A double C thing mm -hmm. that you'll see on Twitter, if you're terminally online, like me, um, <laughs> is kind of the guys that follow the lead of who's the, uh, the bald guy, A16Z. Oh, um, Andreessen. 
Andres Marketing. and yeah. And so they kind of follow his tenets yeah. of like, go, 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 go. It should be pushed to its utmost limits. So Dude, I'm curious as to how you see yeah. blockchain complementing AI and vice versa, if there's any interrelationship there. Because I think that's an underrated narrative. And I feel like yeah. it's fallen off since ChatGPT went away. Everyone's kind of forgotten that AI is still, not forgotten, but I feel like that it's slipped out of the mainstream. So yeah, what exactly. your it's, thoughts? It's going through redefinitions. And it's funny, like you, you mentioned the EAC and the, you know, the DAC, the, the, the decelerationists and stuff. But it's, um, it's like, it's pronouns for tech people is, is kind of what it is. And, um, you know, uh, I'm okay with whoever wants to have their thing. Like, I'm not hurt by all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, my narrative is that I'm kind of centralist. I see both sides and I want to understand both sides of an argument and decide my own pathway. But more often than not, history has shown us that the truth kind of falls somewhere in the middle. Um, and it's not that I'm trying to find the truth or we're trying to find the truth with these things. I just mean that the the thing that really pushes society forward is not necessarily the ones that want to um, be on one side of an extreme. And we've got these two ends of the extremities. And I even argued in that sense, you know, the people that want to slow things down, I don't see that kind of um, working. But I don't think it's like some people want to slow things down, but that's not the one definition for it all. Like someone like you that might want to slow things down for pragmatic well, reasons. I'll caveat, I don't want to slow things down. I just don't want to, I just don't <laughs> mind. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I, so, of, I, I look at limiting progress as a bad idea, market-wise. It's like, why would you get in? Like, let's yeah. not try and, if you're starting to say like, hey, let's put mm. government regulations on how much people can innovate. I think that's terrible. Mm, that's, like, that's, that's too much, right? I agree. So I think that's the thing. It's it's this uh, spectrum where um, I've spoken with people on the EAC side and said that, look, I'm not fully there because I don't want to um, accelerate it and, you know, do innovation at all costs. I think innovation is going to happen and you want to learn about it and you want to play a part in it. But if you accelerate at all costs, you do what Web2 did and it's just scrape everything and not give any, you know, of the rightful rewards to the owners of the th people that created the things that we're now, um, you know, uh, utilizing. So I don't want that, but I also don't want us to slow down. And I definitely, like I said, I don't think that anyone is really, although there might be, I don't think that anyone is really extremely one or extremely the other. We're, we're all a spectrum. But the funny thing is that on the EAC side, when you say that you want to be more pragmatic, they're like, well, immediately that's not EAC. That's not effective accelerationism and stuff. And it's just like, how does that kind of work, right? We Look, I, I believe that you, sh you can push and we'll have the evangelists for these sides. But in reality, mm -hmm. it's not going to work that way. Like you would be criminal almost if you were doing everything to just push technology at the sake of humanity. And so I feel like um, the good thing about coming from Web3, and I know a lot of tech bros got... Uh, um, or crypto bros were made fun of a little bit. And, you know, it's funny. I, I'll, I'll laugh at myself. I'll laugh at everything, right? Um, going, going into uh, Web3, sorry, going into AI from Web3, the funny thing was like, oh, they're just going on the latest kind of hype trend. But in actual fact, I think that that's the, I mean, people had no choice and people don't even realize they're doing it. But if you're going in from a blockchain perspective, you will look at any other technology in terms of how do you decentralize it? How do you loosen the grip of control of power from the centralists and, and whatnot? And it's not just that, but it's the risks that come from um, just having all of this in one spot. I love open source, for example, because within the AI space, if you do open source things, it's easier to share, it's easier to 
get testing done. Um, I know that uh, there is arguments that a private um, kind of institution like OpenAI will have better models, but that is a race that open source is catching up with, may overtake, may get overtaken, but it will be a continual thing. But I certainly believe in the power that um, both of these texts can bring together. So if we think about how does AI help, that's the easy one. AI helps everything. In terms of anything that you're doing where it's manual, it's intensive, you've got to read a lot of things. I just showed you an example. Well, showed, I read an example. I can't read all of those thousands of pages. Like I'm a late diagnosed dyslexic, right? My eyes jump all over the page. Um, I had to repeat so much stuff to just be good at it. You know, I'm a trained accountant. You know, I, I had so much problems with like words, numbers was my thing. Um, but with at least like ChatGPT tools early on and what we built at Not Centralized, where it's a more private version of a ChatGPT, it's like business friendly. Um, I can do things with these uh, GPT models that just make my life so much faster. I can respond to proposals. I can do so much more. I can analyze things from angles that I wouldn't have thought of because I'm harnessing the power of human thought that's been there before that these models have been trained on. Because humans, um, like it or not, we're pattern machines. Like we see things like if your mate buys a red um, buggy, you know, a, a June bug car or something or a Tesla you're going to notice Tesla's all around because we are really good at pattern matching. And when you think about how AI has been trained to mimic humans, for good or for worse, you know, it follows and it strengthens what humans are about. If you offer AI money, for example, you offer ChatGPT more money, you're going to get higher quality responses, just like you would a human. If someone offered you, Tom, like, write me a story for $1,000 versus write you a story for $10,000 you're gonna have a much higher quality response for the high amount of money. Not that you're giving GPT this thing, but if you tell it, it's gonna think that. And then people are like, wow, this behavior is crazy. It's like, well, it is, but this is human. The interesting thing is how blockchain goes the other way. Yeah. Um, and the really cool thing is that when you think about what is blockchain good for, blockchain and crypto have had this kind of like nice, interesting kind of tug of war thing when it comes to the collective mindset. A lot of people that might be your friends or family, they think of, um, you talk about blockchain, they think of crypto and it's like, there's the technology underneath it, which is more backend kind of software. It's not glorified. It is when people go, well, I can just use a database. Yeah, this is a better database, right? It's a better way to decentralize your storage. Blockchains have not been hacked. It's the front ends, it's the people, it's the things that, are on the outside, but a blockchain network has yet to be really um, hacked or it, it, it's still very proven that the technology is strong. And some of the earliest things that have been done have been just having blockchains as the place where you can uh, have the data stored so that you can have immutability when it comes to auditing both the inputs and the outputs of an AI model. Going beyond mm. that, a couple of things that you can do is, let's take a few scenarios, for example, royalties. Micropayments are not really easy to do and set up in the real world. However, with blockchain, we can have these micropayments going to the people that create articles, that create podcasts, that create artworks and content like that, such that they're rewarded at a very low cost effort. That's something that's just been natural with blockchain. Another thing that you can do there is that Take the case of OpenAI, um, well, New York Times suing OpenAI for web scraping their content. Now, imagine in the future that um, you've got web crawlers. Web crawlers will go to a website and there's rules on a website. So you look up something called the robots.txt file, which has instructions there of what can and cannot be 
done on that website. So it will look up something called like, um, like bot GPT. I forget what the common thing is from OpenAI and these other scrapers when they're scraping um, like websites. This thing will say in robots.txt if it's allowed or not. If it doesn't have it listed there, then you can scrape it because they're not protecting for that. But imagine in future there's smart contracts where you have an arrangement. OpenAI has an arrangement with a group ruled by a smart contract that smart contract says, yes, you're on the list. You've been paying your bills. You can scrape. And it's just as, mm. I mean, that's a very simplistic point of view, but um, I can see something like that happening. And then finally, in the future, when your doctor, your financial advisor, your lawyer and people of um, in roles of services where you need humans involved, either because it's legislated or it's just a, re a good requirement to have human oversight. How do you know when I'm doing something with AI and you know it's AI that a human has read over this thing? So we developed something and I'm sure we'll see more of it. But when you have the outputs from our tool and because we're working in healthcare and finance and other places, you can actually click to have a microsignature. A microsignature would be a ZK proof that attests like a digital attestation that I, Mark, have read the output that yes, I'm using, I've tweaked, I've done something with it such that if I have to get audited for something that I did, a report, a piece of advice or whatever, I can point back to the tool um, and say that, yeah, I've, I've got that. That's what was the output of the AI from all of the things that it did, but I read over it. I'm still the human in the loop. So that proof of human thing, I think, you know, blockchain can play a part there. Why it's a ZK proof and not just you put it on a blockchain as a record is because there might be things where a ZK, I don't want to send my data just to prove something. It might be that you could query, you know, whether I did this at a certain date, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I can just send you a true or false, you know, ZK mm. are a great unlock. I didn't mention that in the outlooks. Um, but we should be seeing a lot more of that. And the funny thing is you don't need blockchain for ZKs. So guess what? We can see ZK proofs and that kind of tech in just traditional systems. But as you and I know, blockchain being decentralized, there's better ways to have certain systems of record keeping because it's decentralized. So there's a bit on how AI helps blockchain, how blockchain helps AI. And, you know, being involved in communities like we are on both sides, like blockchain and AI, we're seeing some really interesting things coming from the community meetups, the hackathons and various events that are coming up this year. Okay, awesome. I do see like one of the main, one of the primary concerns that I see with AI mm. is particularly to do with artists, creators, uh, essentially being unsure where their content is coming through. Mm -hmm. If it's been trained on it, how likely do you think it is that blockchain could actually be utilized to help verify some of that information. Cause I feel like it's almost yeah. a little too late to stuff that in now and be like, yeah. Hey, well, blockchain fixes this. And as much as I do think that, that blockchain has utility in certain aspects, I feel like unless it's, you're putting data, like kind of segmenting it on blockchains now that it can then point back to and say, mm. this is this person's yada, yada, yada. And it's like everything on the internet up until a few years ago existed entirely outside of a blockchain yeah um how likely do you see that as like becoming more of a standard norm so that blockchain like blockchain could potentially verify creator content on the internet and prevent some of those crossovers there a couple of things there so um in terms of that being able to say for example just in the ai space um watermark uh, is something that they've been trying to do and still doing like digital watermarks in images that you cannot see to the naked eye, but it is there digitally. 
Um, that's been done and some are still pushing that out as like, this is just part and parcel of what we do, whether it's, I can't remember if Samsung's doing that or, or maybe one of the other new AI tools is going to be doing that just part and parcel with what they do. It was more experimental and now it's kind of going into production. That's great, but research papers have shown that you can get around it. You can either remove the watermarks and maybe it's not so easy. You have to be a, a tech head and know what to do. But usually with tech, those things are made easier such that it becomes an app. So, you know, you could see the influx of that. But the point is, is if you can get rid of that watermark, um, the it's it's hardly a protection. The other bad thing is, is that if that watermark is to prove that something is made out of AI, then people have shown that you can create false positives, which is in some ways even worse. Imagine you're an artist and you've created something and then someone throws a watermark on that and goes, well, no, not really. Look at this. I've got this proof that it's actually a digital thing made by AI rather than you. The false positives will be a bad thing as well. Interestingly, um, what I think is hopefully going to happen is this merger of the things that we mentioned before where if people are going to be, if, if AI tools are going to be ethical, um, and I say if, because it's, you know, humans that we're the fault in the loop, we're the ones like the AI is just doing its thing, but the humans are the ones that actually really create these things that are good or bad with it. But I can see a situation where an ethical type of AI, and let's say it's an art um, creation kind of tool like Leonardo or Midjourney or um, Dali, you know, from, from OpenAI, um, that what they potentially do is they create something and have a way of systematically having tagged all of these different things that are in its training. And if those things end up getting used um, in whatever shape or form as part of outputs, and maybe it's not done on a per output basis uh, of, of a new creation or some way of just measuring it, um, then attributing royalties to how much your stuff is being used. Because if I ask for something that um, is Mozart-like, and then there's the people that create Mozart paintings or paintings of that style or artwork of that style. Maybe it's such a broad, um, blunt object that all it can do is just um, group everyone into that. And I get a divisor of that's like everyone winning the lottery, you know, like, so I get cents on the dollar rather than specifically knowing it was my artwork that was part of that. Whatever it is, as long as there's some sort of attribution there, and let's just say that ethical ones are doing that and they're paying people royalties for contributing and you're encouraging um, contribution, I can see a situation there where we have a divide. A divide just like we've seen uh, and we talk about in the DeFi versus TradFi space where with DeFi, we eventually, a lot of us want to see regulation in the space for good reasons, like good regulation from good countries, like, you know, that aren't doing things to steal for a whole nother episode. But let's just say that it's like a Spotify kind of moment. Spotify was around after, after the Pirate Bay came around. We had Naps, the Kazaar, you know, um, all those cool LimeWire and all that. I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough. I to remember. That's, that's Tom, Tom I just scraped in at the end of LimeWire, managed to, yeah. Perfect. You were yep. a two-year-old, but you, you scraped in. Um, no, but you know, that was stuff is, so not that stuff, but like um, Pirate Bay is still around, right? Like people can choose to, and I know people, and I'm not going to name them, but are still using the Pirate Bay, but you've got Spotify. Spotify democratized things. They cut their deals. They got regulated. Now, arguably, they really favored the user rather than the actual um, artists. There's not much reward for them. So I think there's better ways that a Spotify type moment could happen. But if you think about DeFi, in DeFi, we're going to have that future of regulated DeFi 
And I'm sure there's going to be unregulated DeFi and people doing shady things and stuff, but you choose to do that. It's based on your risk profile. The point is that you have a choice and sure you choose to go down that path and there may be things that go after you, but that's, that's your choice. You should have that. And I see that as a, hopefully a way that we can see with um, artists and going back to the AI thing, we can have um, more ethical AI and I'm sh it's the cat's out the bag. You're going to have models out there that people can just download and do things without attributing royalties and stuff. But hopefully we see more of the good because, you know, they probably should have done some protections in there and cut deals with and done it the right way. But um, mm. arguably there's maybe a good thing to what they've done because now everyone is jumping into the space. It's kind of like, you know, the way that I got into Web3 was arguably through things that were very Ponzi-nomic. I didn't know it at the time and I was trying to make sense of it. I'm doing data analytics and economic kind of theory in terms of gaming, you know, guilds and like how those things work and then going, how does this actually make sense? Why is it more money? <laughs> oh, after a while. Oh, I wait a second. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Like if I invite two of my friends and they invite two of their friends and they invite two of their Egyptian comedian friends, then you've got like a, a big pyramid sitting somewhere in wherever, you know? So man, it's, it's, it's crazy, but I, I want to see good being done. And I'm just saying that, you know, blockchain teaches us better systems than we have before where we could distribute information. We can distribute, um, uh, basically monetary rewards and incentives better. Like I was listening to Bankless the other day. I don't know if you saw this, but they had Brian Armstrong and the, his co-founder from something called research hub. And it's in the DSI space. So a problem in science is that incentives are really poor because you're incentivized to produce good results. You don't produce your negative results. And they had something where it used to be around 40% of research showcased, you know, years ago, 20 years ago, negative results, because that's important to moving the space forward, right? But now it's only like 20% because people don't want to publish that because the reward incentives just aren't there to publish things that were negative, even though that'll move the space forward. So they're trying to change that. So I just, you know, you take blockchain thoughts and core tenets to many of these different things that we're doing right now, and you can build better incentive structures. And I hope that you can do that with, or you, we can all do that with AI. Okay. I'm not sure how much of your wheelhouse is still uh, to do with DeFi. Um, it's a good question. I am. Uh, how much of your wheelhouse is still to do with DeFi? Uh, you, you know, when you, you run out of time, you, you build yourself more time. I, and I do have to say that I think that this year we're doing more in the DeFi space, especially as Oz DeFi, we're committed to running, um, 40 events this year across, uh, four major cities. So Brisbane, Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, to start off with, we've got chapters in Newcastle, Canberra. Um, we've even got folks in Adelaide and Jason down there is doing great things with Simon and a few others, but, um, we are committed to those four major cities at least to doing 10 events this year. And so I'm scrambling to get those underway. So in a way, this is our biggest year, even though there's been all this noise about AI. Um, I think it's been necessary. It's been great that we've not great in a way that we've cleared out the noise and the mess from the, you know, we had DeFi summer and then all this crap happened overseas and a little bit here. Um, people lost money and it's unfortunate. Um, but you know, with the investment side of things, don't put in more than you're willing to lose, diversify and all that kind of stuff. Hard lessons were learned and hopefully we see some recovery of that with the whole FTX thing and whatnot. But, um, in terms of work, 
there's a lot more mainstream stuff happening in the blockchain space. So the movements, I believe, really happen when you have banks, financial institutions, other corporates adopting telecoms, for example, adopting blockchain technologies as part of what they do, seeing more events, bringing new people in. We were really lucky to have at each event, we do a hands up and see who's new to the space. And we'd always get a good number of people, like sometimes 20, 30% that were new to the meetup. So even though we had good numbers, like 60, 70, 80 at each events, we were still getting new people coming into this space and others rotating in and out that were more of the regulars. So DeFi is still a big part of what we do. And even like I said, with the AI stuff, we're bringing blockchain into it. We're very lucky at Not Centralized being this part of the Australian blockchain ecosystem with some of the projects that we've done and we can talk about. Um, we're really lucky we started off from that because we bring that philosophy into um, the other emerging tech like AI. And eventually when we're all talking in a year's time or so about quantum, you know, well, maybe it's a year's time, but it's like a year, but it's really 10 years from now, but we've gone back in time because quantum will open up like a wormhole and we'll all be like back to the future. But whatever it is, you know, quantum is coming, so to speak. Um, I just believe that... What do you mean by quantum? Quantum computing. So um, there's companies, Australia is really great at it. You know, there's some great uh, companies. Sydney has the quantum terminal. There's uh, companies like, I'm going to butcher some of the names and stuff here or actually not even remember. So don't worry about being butchered, folks. It's not even there in my head. But I've met some companies that are doing stuff and they're trying to get quantum um, computing to do analysis. So to do economic analysis, to doing markets analysis, to doing, um, you know, medical analysis, because imagine that instead of things taking time like they do with traditional computing, even with these really fast NVIDIA GPUs, it's still this process of it's, it's in order. It's not all done at the same time. Or if you want to do that, you have a really expensive uh, hardware and software costs running multiple GPUs doing the same tests at the same time. But with quantum, still expensive, but you've got these things where it can run far more types of tests and scenarios and you get to answers a lot faster. I feel like, and look, I'm going to be really, it's probably not a question you can do, but imagine you can go, okay, well, if Bankless and folks like the these others are talking about fast, like have crypto fast, uh, what is it, fast tracks or it's not... Um, it, it really speed runs um, history and, and testing of things. Imagine you can do that at a far greater scale. Yeah, crypto did things in like years that took hundreds and decades of you know years and stuff. Well, maybe quantum does it in a few minutes. So that's mm. another kind of scary thing. But um, I, yeah, speaking of scary things, uh, the only thing I'm not up to scratch on on quantum computing at all, and I'm not going to pretend to be. But yeah. Uh, the one thing that I do remember kind of coming across was the danger of quantum with blockchain in the sense, and it was one of the big like doomer arguments out there. Mm -hmm. that was like, once quantum computing becomes sophisticated enough, technically it could hack a blockchain. And that was like the, that's when Bitcoin will yeah. end argument. Do you think that's plausible? Uh, yeah, but at the same time, the counter is that um, it, it does that to everything. So no more HTTPS. So go, go bye-bye to internet security. What's the point of any electronic device anymore? Because everything is just hackable. It's not just blockchain. It's the same kind of argument that people have when they go, well, how do you deal with your electronic funny money when the power goes out? Well, how do you deal with normal banking when the power goes out, buddy? You know, it's um, the same kind of yeah. thing. The world is run electronically. And especially here in Australia, I could get that argument in really cash-rich uh, economies. But 
it's it's a real rarity to not do stuff digitally. There's pros and cons to doing that. Um, and well, I mean, fact, Optus went out for an hour, like a, a couple of hours. And no, 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 I was glad to be a Telstra Maxi that day. <laughs> but I mean, Optus goes out for a couple of hours, and it was like, I think the people realized the the kind of fragile nature of everything. And it is always that funny yeah. thing of like, oh, what what happens to crypto? It's like, my guy, what happens to literally everything? Like, oh, exactly. Crypto is just a, a third order thing in that list. Like it's probably one of the least essential things in that list of what happens when the internet goes down. You know, that talks um, about this irony, like why people hate um, crypto. And, and I get it when uh, the people that have been promoting it have been the scammers, the con artists, the, you know, when that's not everyone that promotes it. They're a, they're a minority, right? And they're very like, loud minority. They're very loud. Chainalysis shows us that illicit activity is from what they can tell, it is such a small um, portion of what is publicly known in terms of uh, the crypto hacks. And there's probably stuff that they don't, they know about that we don't know, and it goes into their numbers. And it's obviously not everything. So caveat there, but they show that at least from as much as they can gather that illicit activity, just like in the real world, money laundering is not everything. If we were going from a system of whatever it was, it was handshakes before, and we go to this thing called money and people go, well, look at all the scams that happened there. And then you show that like UN reports from 2017 or whatever it was, 5% is maybe um, good guess is about uh, 5% of GBT, GDP globally is money laundering, right? Um, that's a small percentage there but yet the whole thing gets painted with that brush. It's the same thing with crypto. It'll be the same thing with any new technology. It's new, it's different, I'm scared of it, don't do it, it's a crime. Well, there is also the irony of using a public ledger that anyone can see online for illicit activity. It's like the cash is just yeah. a much better option. And I mean, it makes exactly. sense. You want to send money cross-border if you want to do that in large sums, if you've got great OPSEC, yeah. then sure, you can use a mixer. There's reasons that you would use it but it's like the fact to say that the entire industry is that and not just a bunch of nerds uh building financial tech on the internet and sinking lots of money into it for fun um and for their own self-interest it's like uh, sorry self-interest is the wrong yeah way yeah. of putting it but it's like but it's it's everyone's kind of mutual self-interest at play um <clears throat> i do think that the level of ire that crypto receives in terms of being used for criminal activity is completely unwarranted yeah, um, agreed. And over time, and as agencies figure out how to look at it, it decreases over time as well because people are like, shit, it's... Can't do that anymore. Bitcoin is no longer this really complex thing that it's like, oh, well, the cops don't know what it is. It's like, they do. They're very aware. Yeah. Um, the so authorities no, come I mean, to these events, you know, well, uh, they, I've seen them at, um, and they present themselves. I'm not saying like that your local cop shop is going to be there, but people that work in... <laughs> Um, whether it's the government bodies uh, that are regulating the space or the ones that are doing the enforcement side of things, whichever agency that might be, they are well aware and they come to the events like the major national kind of ones and conferences because they want to meet with people because we want to see good being done in the space. Like you have a nice sound economy running when there is protections for investors at the same time there is room and ample room for innovation. Like we definitely don't want to stifle things. And Australia has been a great test bed for a lot of innovation, but yeah, we have to have balance, right? Yeah. And this is the thing I was actually speaking with, this is a couple of months ago, I was speaking with the secret service. Um, I'm not sure if I should name the, the specific field office, but it was interesting. Uh, I was chatting with these guys that work in 
crypto enforcement for the secret service. So their main thing is scam protection. Um, yep. And these guys are DGENs, which I found really funny. Like they're super <laughs> interested in it. And they were kind of like, there is a this conflict between having money on the internet mm-hmm. and then like the the pros of that being that you now just have money on the internet. You don't have to deal with, you know, third parties putting it in a bank. It's like, mm. I can just take it, move it around, do what I like. That appeals to some people, doesn't appeal to others. But again, th- there was that, there is that balance of there's a great side to it. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the fact that crypto kind of just opens up the surface area of scam potential. So it's like, instead of having your, hey, send me an Apple gift card, you know, kind of scam where you call someone up and you have to convince them to send you a thousand Amazon gift cards for tax or however that plays out. Mm. You now have this scenario where it's like, okay, uh, upload, click three times and send me $10,000 of money that you will never see returned. The one overnight, Um, the DeFi overnight, $580,000 gone. And it was like, okay, so you're taught when you work at corporates or you just know from being a tech savvy kind of person or not even tech savvy, you're just aware of this. If the email address or the phone number that you're getting from ATO, you know, having money for you or the the email address, <laughs> like it's BlackRock, it's BlackRock at gmail.com. Yeah, right, right. But this thing looked like yeah, it. They've had, it's, they've done some layoffs recently, you know, they've let yeah, them run yeah. the <laughs> Keeping it light. But, you know, this thing overnight, you look at it, the header, it, it is, well, they didn't open up the header. So there was some ways that they did it. Um, and I don't know the tech side of things. Someone else can explain that. But the sheer fact that this thing looks like it uh, is coming from the DeFi, D.Fi, D.E.Fi um, protocol. Uh, looked like it, people clicked on it legitimately thinking it was a thing and then got scammed all that money. Now, here's the thing. I reckon that we can do something about that with the technology. And it goes back to from the ICOs days to the DAOs uh, days and stuff where we were not using blockchain tech for what it could be good for. Imagine if you had a promise of you got to do sweat equity for me, Tom. You got to grind and hustle to, to be part of this DAO. You do all of that. And as soon as I get funded, I run away or I don't give you any money. However, you could have something with a pre-approved contract, smart contract that says that as soon as this wallet gets paid by escrows, you're getting the money coming straight to you for all the work that you've done. The more work that you do, the more allocation you've got, some fair system that cannot be tweaked, that cannot be just because I changed my mind and I was a good person before and now I'm bad, you can't do that. I think it's the same thing. We bring technology into things like, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how this would work. I'd have to run the numbers with the devs like Arturo and stuff in my team. But imagine zero knowledge proofs where the only way that this thing, even if it looks like it's a real email from BlackRock or DeFi, for example, when you click on it, the only way it can actually be coming from that person, that money, that wallet, is if it has something in the ZK proof that proves that and it creates that handshake and it's a true false. So even if someone fakes it, it's going to produce false results and you're never going to get scammed that way. Now, obviously, light, you know, very high level, but I think we should be trying to do things like that to protect ourselves. It's using the tech to protect our own industry, right? Otherwise, we yeah. get scrutiny from the outside. This is just another tick on the box of people from the outside going, see, told you so, you shouldn't be in that space. Yeah. I remember speaking with um, Arturo, who was talking to me at a very high level about ZK proofs. And I just sat there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I, I understand, <laughs> but it was good. He helped, he helped break some of it down. And I do think that ZK well, zero knowledge proofs are going to come back 
not just on the crypto side of things. Like I think that's a reasonable mm. kind of assumption on my behalf to say that, you know, zero knowledge tech will become gradually more popular over this mm-hmm. year um, as people kind of realize its utility. So things like Binance Protocol, in terms yeah. of like just shrinking the size of a, a blockchain in general, Loopring um, and a couple of others that I've completely now forgotten. Um, I would like to get your, because I'm still, mm. I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on with ZK proofs. I would love to get your knowledge mm-hmm. on what zero knowledge proofs are. Yep. At, explain like I'm five, which for all cool. intents and purposes on this conversation, uh, I am. Well, the good thing is that not centralized. We act like we're five-year-olds, even though we're in, um, you know, multiples of uh, that age. I know. No. <laughs> Uh, I think that's why we love, love the crypto space, even though we're tech nerds, we're, you know, we're the banker wankers in a way that have come into the space that we adopted because we have been that way. We've already been the, um, the kind of DGENs in our own industry. We've been different. We've wanted to rattle the cage and make things better for our, our you know, fellow man and stuff. But um, just going back to it, like the way that we see things um, in all of crypto is just great big useful better than what we had before tech solutions and zero knowledge proofs if you just want to think about it from this really high level and this is like you know if anything my role in the space is to act as a go-between between the other directors the the big you know brains that are out there to explain things to the community in a better way to understand so hopefully i don't butcher my own kind of um um ethos here but i think that Zero knowledge proofs, if you think about um, how you move data around in the current world, we we see things like log files or you send the data across. And with a zero knowledge proof, a real world scenario of that is that um, when you go to a, a nightclub and you show the bouncer, your, um, if you're lucky enough to, to be... Um, to still be ID'd. To still be ID'd. You know, like I'm, I'm older now, so I get it every now and then. And I, I count my lucky stars when I do, but I have to show my whole wallet. I have to show... They can read it. And I've, I remember back in the day when I used to go clubbing a lot more, um, maybe five years ago or so, um, but the girls, for example, that I'd be with, the bouncer would look over the, the ID a little bit longer and it's like, what are you doing then? You know, um, memorizing the address, memorizing the name, whatever you're doing, right? It sh- just shouldn't, okay, fine. Do mm. you think that's your game? But like, we shouldn't have to just to be able to prove that you're over a certain age or you should be able to show is your date of birth. Better yet, you should only be able to just say a true or false thing. So a zero knowledge proof is if they, as the authority, ask a question, you can say yes or no based on the information that you've got in your data, your ID, your knowledge, whatever that is that your data is about without actually having to move the data across, without actually having to send the data across. So zero knowledge proof is a way of proving without moving the data. Now, the interesting thing in crypto is that it's being used for roll-ups. So you said shrinking, right? It's being used to group and aggregate a whole heap of uh, accounting transactions in a way, doing it off-chain or on a side chain or whatever that basically is done there. The aggregations that happen are grouping those transactions. So it's low cost because they're not charging for every single transaction that happens on the layer one, typically Ethereum. They're doing it in a batch. So it's a batch load and um, that's the grouped up, the roll-ups that have been happening. That's great. That reduces costs. It moves the space forward. We need that for layer twos. There's pros and cons to everything. Um, In a way, you know, some people might not like that because they see that as um, being centralization. What we've um, discovered though is that um, 
when we were doing the RBA pilot, which was all about um, how do folks that are working in the space um, potentially utilize the CBDC and, you know, big scary thing there, but just think government money, if you don't already know about it, government digital money. But the thing is, is that um, with our protocol, we were doing stuff uh, in a thing called layer C and it's got a digital escrows uh, thing there called trade flows. So whatever industry you're in, I can see that you've got the money to pay me before I do the work. And in construction, it's really useful because tradies, a lot of them just don't do that. They do work and they don't know whether they're, they're going to get paid or not. And worse yet, if they want to do digital escrows, lawyers, accountants, a whole heap of accounts set up, it's a costly thing to do in the Web2 world. It's cents in blockchain and we can just do it really programmatically. Now, we need a stablecoin for that. We're still waiting on an Aussie dollar stablecoin that is mainstream to be able to do that because people here don't want to deal with USDC necessarily yet. Um, but take that aside, what we saw with the CBDC was that we could bring that across here and have the CBDC as a proof of reserve. We trust the government in terms of treasury bonds and yields. In terms of investing, that is the most trustworthy asset, fixed income, treasury yields, right? So if it's a promise from the government, and we've got a good one here in Australia, that would act as a really good proof of reserve to make sure that that stablecoin from NAB, ANZ, CBA, Westpac is actually worth the $1 it says it is, right? So we had the CBDC that way. Zero knowledge proofs came in because guess, get this, you said it before, blockchains are transparent. Now, what business is going to want to do things or criminal or, you know, it's criminals before, but businesses, how a business who wants to store their data on like exactly. their personal private data on a public blockchain? It's, it's like, oh, here's my address, yeah. money. Yeah, it's not going to work the contracts. Um, imagine you go to a cafe. And as soon as you've done a transaction, I can click on the wallet and see their address and see that, oh, they spent this, these are all the transactions going in and out. It does not work. Commercially, there's no confidentiality. Now, Here's the other way. Zero knowledge proofs can be brought in to obfuscate things that only um, the people that are part of the transaction, let's say you and I, we can see the amounts and details that we need to. Anyone else would just see that, yeah, there's a valid um, transaction on Ethereum. And I say Ethereum because we did this. The CBDC pilot was using a private fork of Ethereum for testing purposes, um, but we built a ZK proof that is EVM compatible. And that's important because mm. we're not relying on, you know, going off chain to do the roll-ups and all that kind of stuff to do the accounting transactions or even the proofs like we're doing. We're doing it on chain because we worked out how ZKs work and unfortunately it wasn't really great documentation. So there was a lot of effort that went into this. Um, and so what ended up happening was that we built this thing that is got the digital escrows here is the ZK proof that's on top so that if you're a business doing something with this, it doesn't have to be construction. It could be anything where you use this kind of protocol. You have the confidentiality there and it can sit on, it can sit on a layer two because we put it on base, for example, which is EVM compatible. We've done it on, you know, a non um, blockchain. We did it on DLT, which is Hedera. And there were our partners for the pilot and we've done it on Ethereum. So there's your base layer one Ethereum, there's your layer two Ethereum, and there's something that's not Ethereum that is EVM compatible. And you can do all these things there. The beauty of all of this, the reason why we can do it and do it so fast was because this is open source. This is a place where if you're a dev, you've got great ideas and you, you um, persist, you can create some really interesting things. The rollout now is trying to get corporates and business and banks and yeah. financial institutions to start to adopt these things. And you know, big places take time to change. It's going to happen. Um, so we park ourselves on the side where we know we're going to be on that 
in that area where as soon as um, something maybe whether catastrophic or positive happens, they they want to bring you in to do this kind of stuff. We're having some really great conversations, but it's trickling along. Um, there's it's when you compare what's going on in blockchain, the positives that are going to be coming there from going mainstream, like having the Bitcoin ETF, it far is outweighed at the moment, uh, at least in the news and in terms of movement by what AI is doing. But I think that you know we need to keep pushing on both. Yeah. Okay. So would you say like the future? <laughs> I'm not going to push you into that. No, no, um, no. <laughs> I, I was interested, like, you know, do you think the future is EVM compatible? Well, like EVM dominated in the sense of like, you know, you build on it. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing lots of lots of different people trying to claim that new certain blockchains that are faster, mm -hmm. better. Yeah. More monolithic. And I'm not just talking about like Solana or stuff, but there's like these new ones like Say. Yeah. Uh, so many have popped up in the last month or two now that ETHBTC is going down. Everyone's like, ha! It's happening. Um, <laughs> so from your perspective, yeah. do you think it's the future is very much, and for those listening and not sure, like Ethereum EVM just means Ethereum virtual machine, yep. which I'm sure you can explain better than I can. Solidity. You're writing in Solidity code, which is the most common um, thing for blockchain. So your question, um, it, will it be a Solidity type thing or are we going to see other programming languages? I think it was more of a, do you think the future of blockchain is EVM compatible? Yeah, uh, I definitely think it is. If um, if we just think of uh, the the best, uh, I, well, I say best. I'm going to piss off you know people from Solana and Polygon. Or that's I, all right. Everyone's mad all the time. This is fine. Well, <laughs> um, when I say best, I just mean that um, more people are building on it. And look, maybe that changed. Maybe there's a metric out there, and like, oh, Mark said this, and you know, there, there's more users on this. Whatever. I think that the I'll most... make sure to clip it and be like, yeah. ha, no. exactly. That'll be my clip. I did an Andrew Tate like clip where he's crying on Piers Morgan, or he says that he's crying, not crying, and whatever. Check out my check out my Twitter, folks. You know, get, make that go famous. Um, but the... where can what... people find your Twitter, Mark? Oh, uh, um, that's a good point. Twitter.com CAPTDefi CAPTDefi. Although I am going to go, I'm going through an existential crisis there because I do a lot of AI stuff as well. So I'm, I need to go through a name change or something. I, I do believe in DeFi still, but I've always been a centralist. People think, oh, you're DeFi, so everything must be, you know, completely decentralized. It's like, bro, how do you get loans? How do you get um, any kind of credit creation for personal home or whatever business loans? You need some sort of centralization. I'm much more in the middle. But, um, uh, Going back to it, what the hell were we talking about? It was Twitter. There EVM was, compatibility. EVM it's going to be. Trust me, I'm the most ADHD person alive. So don't worry about it. We're, we're fine. We should have an ADHD podcast where we just like look at shiny <laughs> objects and just click around the internet and somehow um, have a topic there. But no, I think it's, it is going to be EVM compatible. But the reason I asked about the, the programming like languages is I have seen these things where people push out like, oh, well, this is a better programming language than Solidity. Um, because it is much friendlier for people that are new to the space that are programmers that have just come in and they can just write in JavaScript, they can write in their own language. Now, ironically, um, a lot of the people that started in blockchain, yeah, they had to learn how things work. They had to learn about gas fees because that's not something you typically deal with when you're doing, you've got fees for APIs, but it's a little bit different because things are fluctuating when it comes to gas fees. Um, and handling that for businesses. It's just a newer thing to take into account. But at the end of the day, it's still a programming language. There's still rules and ways of doing things. It's still pretty easy to learn. And even if there are better, because academically better, technologically better, faster 
better, harder, stronger, whatever Daft Punk says, um, I think the problem is going to be take up. And given that the majority of things being built um, and created have been EVM, but, you know, a long time ago, Java was one of the best languages out there. And that's moved on to JavaScript, which is different, even though it sounds the same. And you see things like C++ and C Sharp and Python and R and all of these things that do programming or analytics or data science that have been, you know, uh, you see those racing bar charts. Have you seen those animations? It's like the most popular thing for each year. And as the year changes, oh, and then it goes, they did yeah, something yeah. for, um, they did something not for crypto, but they did something for uh, programming languages. And you see over time that what was best and most popular 20 years ago. So just like what was best now, um, EVM may change in future, but at least at the moment for the immediate future, um, it's still going to be the, the one, it's still an EVM future that I see. Just hopefully they um, address some of the bugs, the cons of it, um, that most will build on that or they'll build a side chain or they'll build um, a layer two, but to get something to a layer one, like building uh, layer ones is, is a difficult game as it is. You have to really have good marketing to get things out there and have really good use cases. It will be hard. It's possible and we need that. We need to have the competition there. It can't just be that they're the one king and everyone lets it you know, happen on them. Otherwise they'll get lazy. You keep everyone on their toes. But for now, really long roundabout way of saying it, it is EVM for me. Okay. That ties into my next thing that I wanted to ask you. Yeah, go ahead. And so a big, a big point of this podcast is very much to kind of demystify a little bit around the tech, mm-hmm. um, a little bit around what crypto is, but also just like a little bit around crypto investing mm-hmm. as well as to what kind of assets people like. Again, I'm not asking you to tell people to go buy anything, <laughs> but it's like, and I think I've come around, I come up with a, a reasonable way of asking this, but if you had to kind of start from scratch again today, yeah. you've only got fiat money sitting mm-hmm. in your account. Oh, you've God, got the same that. amount that you do. Yeah. So you've only, you've only got disgusting fiat money in your account with all the knowledge that you have now. It's kind of stuff. Ah. Hong nah. Kong. Is that a euro? Is that Hong a euro? Hong Kong dollars. Oh, Hong Kong. I can I only see a little bit in the cam. I'm reminiscing. Oh, I'm nice. Heading back to Asia. So just looking at what dollars I've got left over from different countries. Anyway. Yeah. So going back, if nice. you had to start over. Yeah. Yeah. If you had to start over with the knowledge you have now, only fiat, how would you design your crypto portfolio? How would you weigh it? Uh, what kind of things would you put in there? I feel like there needs to be um, uh, some sort of app, which is like only fan, but it's only fiat. And uh, it's just people doing things with, with you know, they're, they're doing this kind of stuff. Um, what I would do is, look, I'm lucky that I've come from a background. Like my, uh, I started out as an accountant, realized that I wasn't um, good at doing audit or it just wasn't cut for me. Um, I wanted to do things a certain way. It didn't really bode well with the, the work and stuff. And I, I went into analyst work. I love numbers. I was really good at that. Um, and from going into that space, what was really interesting and learning how to use tools and do, you know, bringing up my statistics kind of background from uni, I was able to get into research analysis, um, at investment banks and being in that space as an equity analyst, looking at macroeconomic trends and being a bit of a quasi economist, I got to see working with traders on trading floors. So, um, proper you know, massive screens or like large numbers of screens, a lot of Bloomberg and, and other stuff going on there, a lot of shouting, a lot of like phone calls, a lot of like client meetings. You see what works and what does not 
in a really professional setting. Um, now, I'm not saying that retail is uh, dumb money, um, but we don't have the kind of information. There's definitely an asymmetry where one side has a lot more information than the other. And even though the world is you know, moving forward, there is always going to be the side that has money will have more information. But what you learn mm. from there is core tenants that are still holding true, no matter whether you're on the sophisticated investor side or the dumb money side, like I'm in now and stuff. But um, you, you are in this space where diversification is key, right? You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Those things that are like, whether it's your grandma saying it or like it's an old wives tale or it's like a, a, um, a thing that is just passed down, it's still very true. Whether it's investments or investment of time, money or resources, diversification is key. You don't want to put everything in one basket. And even if you do, and some people argue for this and I get it, is because you've done enough of the research to know that that is the one bet. If you're going to have to bet on something or two things, I'm going to put all my money the in whole those. Diversification kind of exactly. guys are like, no, 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 yeah, all in on one. So like if you know everything about it, yeah, hard to argue with, right? But the problem is, is that a lot of people, and we spoke about equity mates and stuff before this, and you know, they're a great space for anyone to just look at traditional kind of investing. Um, I've been on fantastic. I've been on their show, right? They're they're lovely guys here in Sydney and stuff. Um, and they've got great, you know, other podcasts, and I I love what you're doing here. So you know, I, I can see you getting on their radar. But the thing is, is that um they talk about it whether it's in the forums or on the shows with the professionals that they bring onto the show or you know i was doing a lot of data analysis for etfs um and i don't do that anymore but i was tracking bitcoin etfs um i've got an app online that you know people care to look at it it needs to go through an overhaul etftracker.com.au aussie etf so no bitcoin ones there but going through the analysis on their show um and, and being in that space, diversification is always up there, as well as risk management. You diversify because here's the thing. A lot of people got rich, but don't know how they got rich. They will, they will say that, oh, I got, I, I knew to buy that NFT. I knew to buy Doge. I knew to buy, man, you had no idea that Elon was going to do that tweet. That's it, hindsight. Bias. It's so much of it. I'm like, I went up a lot. So I was correct in buying it. It's like... Exactly. The problem yeah. with that is that, um, so there's a saying, if you're right for the wrong reasons, you are much worse off. So if you're right, but your thesis, your system of looking at things was wrong, it's actually doubly worse because you will end up potentially doubling down or you, you will do other bets in future thinking that you were right when it could actually be much worse. And it's worse if you actually double up and, and put more money into it, but your thesis was wrong. You want to be like very careful with things. So yeah, risk you've management. got falsely validated confidence. Exactly. It's like you have no reason to be confident, but yeah, Imagine off you go. If, if you're wrong, but you're wrong in a diversified way, so you don't lose as much, you have stop losses and all that. And if you're wrong, um, but uh, apart from like not losing much, but you're wrong for the right reasons, that is better and sticking to a system that, you know, you've back tested and you've proven over time or you've listened, maybe you don't have time for testing, but you just have a core belief in listening to the experts um, that are giving the financial advice. And this is definitely not financial advice, but like um, the ones that where you are long-term investing and seeing something rise over time, like people getting out as soon as something dipped and versus those that had long -term, longer term view, and are seeing the returns back to where we were with um, Bitcoin and, and you know, other coins and stuff uh, two years ago or so. I don't know it's dipped now, but, you know, we've seen uh, those returns. So 
risk management is really key. And I would say other things like knowing the tools, if I could change anything, there's um, more knowledge of the tools that are out there that really help. So newsletters and reading those. And if you haven't got enough time, get ChatGPT or get our tool and like throw everything in there and like do your analysis that way. But like definitely whether it's reading, listening or watching, there's easier ways to consume a lot more information in a compressed fashion to get the insights out of it. So it's the tools, it's that research thing you can do a lot more of now. And just um, things like uh, just being part of communities and uh, going to events yeah. and talking to other people rather than being in your own kind of silo where you're in that echo chamber that's not challenging your own ideas. I would do this if I were people. Like if you're going to use ChatGPT, tell it about your your investment kind of thesis and get it to challenge it because it is going to do it from the collective mindset of all the other humans that have come before. Even if it knew nothing about crypto, it would know about, well, it knows knowledge up to 2023. So it'll know about FTX now, um, but it will use the core fundamental philosophies and truths about investing that have been true all the way back to the ancient Roman times. Like they had diversification. They had things like this, um, you know, the, the utility is what you want to invest in, things like that, and being able to understand yeah. how systems work. And, you know, if something's good, is it good for the supply chain? Does it have like headwinds that are going to come because one of their competitors is creating something here? Like back then, it might have been that the first people to create concrete, Roman concrete, had competitors. And it's like, oh, there's Greek concrete or whatever. Whatever it was, you know, back then, we had systems back then. Information just did not travel as fast. But we should, certainly should not downplay that historically people have been as smart as we are now. They just had different systems and technologies in place. So we might look at them as um, being, you know, dumb, but it's just the information they had at the time. Just don't, we should not think about that that way because in a hundred years time, people will look at us as idiots for, oh my God, oh, you, for sure. you ate food that had that stuff in it. It's like, you know, we knew what we knew at the time. We look back on cigarettes and go, ah, oh, the idiots, just like we're going to look back at half, like maybe half the things that we're doing right now, just on, plastics. On our epithets uh, and stuff on the, the, the vaping, phones, they're just, they're just like, um, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> I attempted. <laughs> I came up short. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no. I mean, we're getting a tiny bit close to time mm -hmm. now, but I was, one of the final questions I did want to ask was to do with, you don't have to answer like, you know, exactly yeah. what assets, but it's like, what kind of, if you had to bet on things that are going to be here in, you know, five to 10 years time in terms of crypto assets, what would they be? Um, it's going to be the main, mainly used uh, chains. I see a lot of other kind of projects. When people look at crypto, the, the various coins, you know, anything outside the top 10 or, or whatever, a lot of these are investments just like you would normally invest in uh, penny stocks, like the Jordan Belfort, yep. Wolf of Wall Street type penny stocks that he was pushing, things that are listed yet have yet to be proven in terms of value utility. They're, they're going for fractions of a cent. And here in crypto, that same kind of project that now is decentralized is like $2, $5, whatever it is, and pumping people's bags and stuff like that. You're doing the same thing, folks, that... Jordan and his crew were doing it just wasn't regulated wait till regulation comes in and it's a harder thing to do that making money of your fellow man like um look this is not to get philosophical and stuff but I, I just find it discomforting when uh, people have made money knowing that knowing you might not have known but knowingly that others have been losing 
when you've been making it. Mm. Now it's not a zero sum game, but there are some people that probably did that without uh, thought or regard. We're going back to it, crypto, where it's heading and stuff. I see a lot of those things being flushed out, but it's like startups. We're not going to stop doing that. We should always have new ideas, but we should try to have that delivery mechanism of utility. It's just that when it's the hype phase, you don't have to show as much. You can have an idea on a napkin and probably get invested. Then as it matures and things kind of wind down, better power. In a bull market, you you might not even need a napkin. You could just walk in and be like, that's it. Token. You shout out, you you shout out token in a restaurant in Silicon Valley where Andreessen and Horowitz and all the other VCs are, but you know, matures, you need a better PowerPoint. You need um, some other investors. You need to show traction. But in any case, the point is is that um, things that will still be there, because I think we'll always have those startups and projects around. But I think the things that will just remain there are the infrastructure, the the major platforms, layer ones and layer twos. Bitcoin will be there. We're, one of our things mm. that we've got coming up, um, an online event for the Oz DeFi Association, connecting all the cities where the major presentation is going to be folks doing um, DeFi on Bitcoin. They'll talk about rootstock. They'll talk about ordinals. They'll talk about these cool things. And, you know, the fact that we've got this Bitcoin ETF it's unlocking like what a lot of institutions are looking at with what else you can do on Bitcoin as well as retail people. But we're going to see Bitcoin, Ethereum. I think other things are infrastructure. So Chainlink, I, I, I'm a strong believer in. There's some great folks uh, like in Adelaide, Verita that are doing things, Filecoin that are doing things in terms of storage and security. There's all these great kind of projects out there. People doing stuff in ESG, like our friends at Sensan. I mean, I could just name the sponsors because they're all great, like Stables doing their cross-border admittance and Block Damon and um, what do you call it? Fire. I've met the guys from Stables. They're, they're great. Fantastic. They're building a good product. You know, um, and then there's... I'm excited to see where that goes. Cloud Tech, for example, they're building a wallet through their Cloud Tech X platform and um, they're, they're trying to do more in the banking space to bring this decentralized technology to more of the mainstream. I see these things that are getting and building infrastructure or usefulness in the mainstream and doing it in regulated ways. That is where things are going to be longer lasting because you've got less chance of people going to jail. You've got the better tokenomic system. And when I I say that, I mean the tokenomics where you literally clip a fee because you're providing a good service. The best kind of tokenomics is something where there's a good service or a product and you're clipping a percentage Mm. fee on that. That's a traditional business model. That's not really tokenomics, but you know that is the best kind that I think is going to happen. And it's the ones that are like that that will be long-lasting. It's just business. The others, there will be startups, there will be speculation. There'll be the fun times. We should always have the vibe. We should always have the art there. But you know, it's like saying that in high school, for example, that um, everything is like art, and you know, you're going to speculate on all this art stuff, like NFTs are good for the art stuff, but NFTs can also do a lot of things in terms of what they represent as like a smart contract type structure for contracts and for, you know, we're using NFTs in our yeah. protocols for doing like the the digital escrows. There's an NFT is part of that, right? Um, but I just think that, yeah, more utilization of the technology is really the, the core thing and principle that needs to be held. Mate, I think that's a fantastic place to wrap up. Thank you. Um, mate, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, mate, it will be, uh, on Twitter. So cap DeFi, you can look me up on LinkedIn, Mark Monfort, and, uh, you can look up not centralized. It's centralized, uh, with an S or the Oz DeFi association, all of those things. Um, and no doubt when you push this out, I will push the message out about this and share it with my community too. Beautiful. Thank you very much.
I know I just said it, but thanks again to Mark and to everyone listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcasting app of choice, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is only episode three, so every subscriber and review from this point onward really helps me build the channel. For those of you curious to find more, just type NGMI underscore crypto into Twitter. Not only will you get updates as soon as these episodes go live, but you'll also come across the NGMI newsletter, which is less of a newsletter and more of an outlet where I provide detailed breakdowns of crypto markets for the week, try and identify key investment opportunities and share some insightful ideas that I've come across while being permanently online for the week. That goes out every Thursday at 11 a.m., so be sure to check it out. Alternatively, you can just search for me on Twitter as well. That's where I spend the bulk of my time. It's T-O-M underscore M-I-T-C-H-E-L-H-I-L-L, Tom Mitchell Hill on Twitter. You'll find my account there. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll see you in the next one.